Heavenly Father, once again we bow our hearts before you in prayer and preparation to hear your holy word. It is my personal prayer that as you see fit to use this unqualified vessel, aside from the Holy Spirit intervening, that it would affect both the giver and the hearer today, that your word which stands alone and over and judges us and quickens us, awakens us, draws us, convicts us, and writes upon our hearts the immutable truth that reigns while kingdoms rise and fall, while nations come and go, while men continue to spurn in this world. I pray that we would find in your word such a refuge that we could anchor our soul there. I pray that your word would have its effect in our heart to provide conviction where needed, encouragement where weak, boldness where we have been shy about preaching the gospel, Lord, in all that you might be glorified. And if there are any who fellowship among us, I pray that you would use your holy word this morning to draw them to yourself. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified in this service and that we would be better equipped to display you, to display your glory as a result of the hearing of the word today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This morning I'd ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 20, Matthew 20, and in a moment I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's holy word. This morning's message is titled Blind Man's Bluff, Blind Man's Bluff. It's a name given for a childhood game some of you might have played where the uh, one individual is blindfolded, he covers his eyes as it were, and then tries to discover the identity of those around him. That imagery came to mind as I read this story in Matthew's Gospel at the end of chapter 20 this week. And as these men were physically blind, it is striking to see the kind of awareness they had of the identity of Christ indeed. And so it is in the scope of this miraculous event that we learn a number of things this morning. But before we venture to apply this text, let us stand together and read Matthew 20 verses 29 through 34. Stand with me if you're able with your Bible open and follow along as I read Matthew 20, verses 29 through 34. It says, And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. The crowd rebuked them telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Verse 32, and stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. In our Matthew series and study, we've remarked that there is a change of pace as the Gospel approaches the final hour of Jesus' ministry on this earth. And there's also a change of direction, and even in the physical course, traveling from point A to point B that Jesus Himself has now embarked upon along with His disciples. So follow with me in your text that lies before you, I trust, as we read. And Matthew 20, 17, note this point in context. It says, And Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. He took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. There's a note in the context of the narrative that Jesus and company are going up to Jerusalem. We find in our text this morning, verse 29, that not just 12 followed Christ, but indeed a great crowd. And we find also in our text this morning, two additional members of this, of this uh, group, this parade, this band following Christ, and that would include the blind men after they're healed and then can see their way to follow the son of David on his march from the point where he was on the outskirts in Galilee and so on, through Jericho, where we find him in our text this morning, 
to Jerusalem where finally he will be crucified on Calvary. He will suffer and die and pay what he himself identifies as the ransom price for many in verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Though on the face of this, this comes as a great surprise for those whose hearts have not been predisposed to listen to the prophets of old who spoke of a coming Messiah, a suffering, and, a suffering and glorious one, a one who would give his life as a ransom for many, who would be the fulfillment of the substitutionary sacrificial system, but would do so in the once and for all offering of his own body and blood. But those who were befuddled at this truth could have heard it reiterated in prophecy, even here in their own experience and own ears, as Jesus has said as much three specific times. And in the context of Matthew 20, we read again in verse 18 these words of Christ. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, he tells his disciples, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, and flogged, and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. So progress, ascending to Jerusalem on Jesus' journey to, ultimately, Calvary, is marked by a certain series of events, as we noted in our last message. This progress to Jerusalem is halted, it's paused for significant moments more than once in this record. And today we find it halted once again, even as Jesus says, or as the author records in verse 32, and stopping, Jesus called to them and said, what do you want me to do for you? Speaking to the blind men. So yet again, progress has taken an interim pause to note an incident that is just six verses long, but I would submit to you in the context of these happenings is extremely, indeed inestimably, profound. This incident involving is, involves one of the last recorded healings during Jesus' ministry here on earth. And it is no accident, and indeed it is our challenge in studying and meditating on this text to answer the question why it appears in the narrative situated as it is right at the tail end of Christ's normal preaching ministry and about to enter the threshold of his work and Calvary and final words Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives, and all of the events that will unfold. This I submit to you, this note in the record of these two blind men that are miraculously healed by the work of Christ is a providential interruption. This indeed is a sovereign, it is a providential interruption in the ascent to Calvary as it were. And this incident with these two blind men, I submit to you this morning and will make the case from the context of Scripture, serves to potently, that is, powerfully illustrate manifold or many gospel concepts summarized by the object lesson of these two blind men coming to Christ. So again, this providential interruption serves to powerfully illustrate many gospel concepts summarized in this object lesson, which is just six short verses, but as I say, profound in its depth and meaning. As Jesus' ministry transitions to the latter chapters, two blind men are healed, and they demonstrate a spiritual sight, not just a physical sight, which they did not have prior to these moments and then received upon the healing touch of their master. But indeed, a spiritual sight, independent of their physical sight, is also demonstrated, and then they join Christ's followers at this the 11th hour, as it were. I would remind you again of the context in this chapter that entails the laborers, the parable of the laborers of the vineyard. Remember in Matthew 20, verse 1, the kingdom of heaven is like, our Lord declares to us, a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Verse 2, after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. As the story unfolds, as the parable progresses, we see that there are other laborers who are hired for the same work, but don't work the same amount of time. And so even in the progress of Christ's own ministry, he is joined by two followers, as it were, in the 11th hour. 
But these two blind men, you could say, are gifted with a level of spiritual sight that exceeded the disciples who had been with Christ, saturated in his teaching, who had previously been following him closely, yet for some reason, in the sovereignty of God, he saw fit to pay the denarius a day, as it were, to those who joined Christ in the eleventh hour, even as they cried, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. They knew enough to identify, even in their physical blindness, that they were in the presence of the son of David. And they knew enough to cry out to this, their master, for mercy. The denarius of spiritual revelation that they received in spite of the conditions, even their physical handicap, is truly striking. They were every bit as much compensated in the picture of the parable with spiritual insight wages, as it were, not account of their own work, but on account of God's sovereign, awakening, resurrecting power. Even as Christ has the power to open the physical eyes of the blind, so he has the power to open spiritual eyes to see. And indeed, this parable that I just mentioned to you, along with all the others, come alive in the gospel narrative of the book of Matthew. This here, these two blind men, example, is a brilliant case in point. So we pick up on this record. Eight miles west of the Jordan, 19 miles northeast of Jerusalem, in Jericho, on the path to the triumphal entry. Again, verse 29, as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. When they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. You'll notice after this incident closes, verse chapter 21 opens, with a progression towards Jerusalem. It says, And now they were drawing near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus sent the two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you. And thus it follows with the record of the triumphal entry of Christ, where he, on the foal of a donkey, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9, enters in this prophesied glory into this, his kingdom, about to take dominion, over hell, death, sin, and the grave, as he gives his life a ransom for many. This morning, I asked myself the question, or let us ask ourselves the question, even as I have done in my study this week, what does this story of these two blind men serve to illustrate? It's a heading for you today. The two blind men and their healing serves to illustrate four points at least. We'll make the case that, number one, these blind men illustrate that the last shall be first, a concept that we see in context. Secondly, these two blind men illustrate what it means when Christ says, follow me. Thirdly, these two blind men and this incident and Christ's miraculous involvement and intervention in their experience in life illustrates for us eyes to see. And fourthly, Drinking his cup, sharing with the cup of Christ's own sufferings. Firstly, this morning, the last shall be first. Again, as you're looking at this text, I'll remind you of two verses where Christ repeats and to open and close the parable of the laborers of the vineyards, the same words. He says in chapter 19, verse 30, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Again, after sharing this story of the laborers who are paid different wages, and when Christ interacts in this hypothetical with those who would argue against such a thing, he says in verse 12, those the dissenters say, that is, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Verse 13, but he, that is Christ, replied to one of them, that is the master in this parable. Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? And then these words again, verse 16. So the last will be first and the first last. It is an absolute principle in the kingdom of God, 
that the way man judges things and the hierarchy of reward and work that we have in this life is entirely different from the kingdom of God. Thus, it stands to reason it will be hard for us initially to understand what Christ means when he says the last will be first and the first will be last. Why? Because in our short-sighted finitude, in our mere humanity, we simply do not have the categories by our mere experience alone to understand this truth, the truth that the last will be first. But to assist us in our understanding, this concept is illustrated, I submit to you, by this parable. There are two men who approach Christ during the later hours of his ministry and sitting by the roadside at the last possible opportunity before they are passed by. Remember, these men are blind. And the crowd, they are not popular with the crowd. The crowd cries out, rebuking them. They cannot hitch a ride, as it were, to follow Christ. They cannot grope around and follow him. It wouldn't be safe to do so. Busy roads. Remember, we are 18, 19 miles northeast of Jerusalem. This, the last 11th hour opportunity to receive healing from the Lord and the truth of the last being first, being counted first, is illustrated for us when Christ touches these. On his road to ascend to Jerusalem, he touches them at the 11th hour, has pity, touches their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and follow him. But have you note in the context of Matthew 19 what a contrast this is to the rich young ruler. Notice there was a man who approached him who was able-bodied in Matthew 19. Let's read 21 and 22. This man was a man of privilege. This man was one who you would think, if you were just humanly speaking, that he would be a great candidate for the kingdom of God. He's well-to-do, he's influential, he's popular, no doubt. He's well-liked, he's able-bodied. This man comes to Christ and says, What deeds must I do to inherit eternal life? The answer comes in context, verse 21 and 22. Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, what happened? He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Here is a well-to-do man, man, strategically well-positioned as far as man's judgment is concerned. Again, rich, able, influential. He could be a powerful kingdom builder for Christ, we would think, in our own short-sighted humanity. Jesus calls him to follow him, and he does so by telling him to leave his idolatrous lust for worldly possessions, leave all behind, and follow Christ alone. What happened? Well, the first was last in this case. This man went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. A great candidate for the kingdom of God. Truly, uh, you could count on one hand, it seems, in all of America, the churches that would turn away this man's money or his membership. He's a well-positioned in the community, a man of great respect, of great repute, but in the kingdom of God, different standards are employed as far as acceptance and rejection is concerned. This man, unless he repented later in life, at the end, at the final day, would receive the most horrible words you could ever imagine because he rejected the most gracious words you could ever imagine. Enter into eternal destruction because when the voice of your master called, come follow me, you decided to follow your riches and thus Christ's words were proved that those who are counted among the first in this life often are the last in the kingdom of God. But now in stark contrast to that story, we have two other individuals. Again, we read of them in verse 29 of Matthew 20. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him, and behold, there were two blind men. Notice immediately the contrast able-bodied, blind, sitting by the roadside. What did the crowd say? Rebuke them, telling them to be silent. The crowd was not accepting of them. They were reviled and rejected. They were scorned and chided. They were told to shut up. There's more important things to do, more important people to reach. May our, our, the progress of our master should not be halted by a couple of beggars and desperate men on the roadside to his more important duties. Don't you know you're talking to a king after all? 
these two desperate, unpopular, disabled men, what happened? They received their sight. Christ paused. He stopped. He interrupted his course to Jerusalem on account of two men who cried out to him for mercy. And he said, and he had pity on them, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. And thus we find illustrated in the kingdom of God those who are counted last among the people, among people and children of men are often counted first in the kingdom of God. So remember, by way of application, no one comes to Christ as a qualified candidate. All come as sinners. Whether materially rich or poor, you cannot come to Christ unless you know you are disabled, you are broken, you are disqualified, and you have no standing except for Christ, in Christ alone. This man must be understood as the one who would give his life as a ransom for many, even a ransom for you. And no matter how rich and influential you are, you cannot, according to Psalm 49, which we studied two weeks ago, purchase the ransom price for your death. Only Christ can do that. The last will be first in the kingdom of God. Also, this is a great illustration, Christ's interaction with these two blind men, of another principle of the kingdom of God that falls under this heading, the last shall be first. Christ goes on to describe in Matthew 19, some dis- I'm sorry, 20, some distinctives of the kingdom of God with respect to its servants, with respect to its leaders. Jesus says in verse 25, He called the disciples again to him for instruction. He said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Verse 26, It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Greatness in the kingdom of God, as we previously remarked, is always and only marked by sacrifice and servitude. And Christ modeled this. He not only declared it, as we have just read, but He modeled it in His interaction with these two blind men. This important king of all the universe, on a purpose and a mission, setting his face like flint to Jerusalem, stopped. And what did He do? He interrupted that mission and no other mission in all of history was of greater importance why did the son of man stop why did he pause for two mere desperate pitiful voices crying beside the road he stopped because the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many and to model for us what true Christian ministry and discipleship looks like. Churches get distracted. We get distracted. In our efforts to grow what we think is a good example and representation of the kingdom of God, oftentimes we don't want our vision, our goals of progress, halted by an inconvenience of a desperate person who needs loving care, discipleship, and a hand to hold them through the deepest sorrow and greatest anguish that you could possibly imagine. Yet every gospel minister's heart ought to be pricked to this by this story to know that your life of comfortable Christian ease will only continue to be Christian if you are willing to have it interrupted by the inconvenience of true discipleship and gospel ministry will you will be where you will be willing to walk through something very difficult alongside someone else. The book of Romans goes on to tell us that those who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. These days, churches grow by numbers, grow by size, grow by entertainment, grow by influence, grow by all these external outward man-kingdom-building measures. But I fear that there is an inverse relationship with these measures of growth and true kingdom effort and true kingdom work. Are we willing to let our vision of success and progress be be interrupted by the inconvenience of true gospel ministry? To cry with somebody, to be a shoulder for them through difficulties and circumstances that require counseling, care, concern, prayer, endurance, faithfulness, and an interaction 
that can only be described in Christ's words as laying down your life, taking up your cross, and following him no matter how deep the splinters, no matter how steep the precipice of Calvary. To count it a joy and to count yourself privileged to suffer with Christ. In the kingdom of God, the last shall be first. Those who lay down their life can expect rewards and glory. Those who seek to gain their life now will lose it. But those who seek to lose their life now will gain eternal life. This is the message of the kingdom and this is illustrated in the miracle of the two blind men receiving their sight. Thirdly, the last shall be first. Note briefly the answered prayer in this case. I submit to you that the greatest reward conceivable was bestowed upon these two blind men. In the original Greek, the words Jesus in pity as they appear in our English language have far more depth and far more uh, connotation in their scope of meaning. In verse 34 we read, And Jesus in pity touched their eyes. In passing, it might appear to us with our experience in just mere English language that um, just you know, a brief emotional uh, thing passed over Christ and he thought, well, i got to help these guys out. I can at least spare a dollar to drop some change, as it were, in the beggar's cup. Have you ever walked down the street in an urban setting and there are those who are begging for food? And the sign that they hold tells you that they're just looking for enough for their next meal. And so out of pity in passing, you rummage in your pocket for a few loose coins, perhaps a crumpled dollar, and you drop it in the cup. You continue on your way and you very swiftly forget. It's not just a matter of time where that homeless individual is a distant memory. This is not the case in this example. Jesus didn't just pause and in passing have pity on, this, on these men, but in the original Greek, it, the language denotes a moving of the seat of the affections and the core of his soul to have compassion out of an anguish of heart that overflowed in love and concern and action where the Lord of glory was so moved that he reached out in salvation both uh, in these men's physical and I would submit to you spiritual plight. Some people talk about their heart of hearts or in the core of their being or anguish of the soul or being moved with a kind of indescribable passion towards a, a certain end. The kind of love and concern that a loving parent feels for their little daughter, or their little son, especially when they may be in harm's way. How are you moved in the seat of your affections in a hypothetical where you would see a loved one, a little two-year-old stumbling towards a cliff and you know they're just inches, inches from tumbling over a thousand-foot precipice to certain death. How are you moved in that instance? That's the kind of emotion, that's the kind of impetus that Jesus responded to these men's prayer with. That, brothers and sisters, beloved of Jesus Christ in this room, is a powerful picture of Christ's love for you. If you have cried out, have mercy on me, son of David, you can be assured of the kind of anguish of soul and love and concern and motive force of compassion towards you that is infinitely greater than the purest love we can imagine of a human parent to a child in need. Why? Because the last shall be first. Those who cry out to the Son of David in anguish will receive the immeasurable love, infinite in scope, where the author, Paul of Ephesians, prays that we might have the capacity to understand its breadth, its length, its height and depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That is the love that is extended toward you if you throw yourself at the mercy of the Son of David. Second point this morning, the story of these blind men and their miraculous healing serves to illustrate not only that the last shall be first, but also what it means to follow Christ. What does it mean when Christ says, follow me? Briefly, by definition, Thayer's lexicon, I'll rehearse for you a 
definition that we considered, and this is a contextual definition in the context of the Gospels, we find that to follow Christ as was a common uh, a saying or concept in this day to follow a disciple or one who was a mentor and influence in your life meant to follow someone meant in the sense to join as a disciple, to cleave steadfastly to one, to conform wholly to his example in living and if need be in dying also. Again, the definition Uh, In semantic terms, what does it mean to follow Christ? To join as a disciple, to cleave steadfastly to one, conform wholly to his example in living, and if need be, in dying also. But more than these mere words as a definition of follow, we have the story here of two blind men that did exactly that on account of what happened to them. As they were crying out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David, And the crowd rebuked them. They cried out all the louder, all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. In verse 32, and stopping again, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. I wonder if we can't read between the lines of this text and sense a motive in the heart and soul of these two men that one of the greatest reasons they wanted their sight to be healed was so that they could follow Christ. When you pray for God to heal you, when you pray for God to answer your prayer, why do you pray? Do you pray for an answer so that you might be about the business you had already planned? So you might continue with your own little kingdom building dreams? Or do you pray for able-bodied and presence of mind and conviction of heart to follow Christ. Where was he going? He was going to be scorned and mocked, even as these men were scorned and mocked in this moment. He was going to suffer the derision of the authorities of both the ecclesiastic order, the church, and the political order, imperial Rome. And these men saw, and with their sight, they followed him exactly that direction. This is the message of follow me, that we see illustrated in this miracle. Not just that they received their sight, but also that they received mercy. And in receiving mercy, they gave themselves wholly and completely to the obedient service of their master, to follow him wherever he would call, steadfastly conform wholly to his example in living and if need be, in dying also. This word that was on the lips of these two men, mercy, in the Greek is eleo. Eleo. It's uh, difficult to say. Eleo. Something along those lines. Considering the linguistic relationships of that Greek term, it denotes an appeal to God's covenant, loyalty, and mercy. The word indicates in the context that when someone would cry out for mercy in this sense, they were asking that a master, one who had the power to do so, would show undeserved favor on them as he defines it. They were crying out, Son of David, show us mercy as you define according to your terms, as you have established in accordance with your truth and with your promises, with your covenant. Again, I'd have you notice a contrast in this text. When we cry out for God to intervene and to help us, it's best illustrated here in these men when they cried out for mercy that God would help them to submit on His terms. There were others who cried out to Christ. How do you cry out to Christ? Again, I ask, do you cry out as the two blind men did for mercy on God's terms or do you cry out as the woman did, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, representing her children who in 1920 or 20 sorry chapter 20 verse 20 kneeled before Christ and asked him saying in verse uh, 21 say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom Jesus answered you do not know what you are asking are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink said you do not know what you are asking She was asking for something wrongly. She was asking remiss. 
Her, at, her question, her desire, did not fit into the prescriptive will of God. Why? Because she wasn't asking for mercy for her sons on God's terms. She was asking for privilege for their glory. She was asking according to a covetous heart who would seek to share the lordship of Christ, not submit to the lordship of Christ. When the two blind men cried out, have mercy on me, they were saying, show me that undeserved favor according to your terms. I throw myself undeservedly at your feet. I submit to your lordship. Too often, another heart is illustrated. We come to the negotiating table, as it were, before we commit to follow Christ and we say, Lord, I will follow you if it could be promised that I could share in your lordship. Fulfill my carnal desires. Give me my wildest dreams. Satisfy my soul, my carnal, sinful lusts. And maybe then I will follow you. After all, me giving my life to you, Jesus, is a privilege that I'm sure you'd really appreciate. How many of us come to Christ that way? Hopefully none of us in this room. There are false gospels that are offered that seem to indicate, if you listen to the context, that it is a great privilege that you reserve the liberty to grant, to give your life to Christ. Who wants it so? That is not the message of the kingdom. The message of the kingdom is you retain no control, no rights, no autonomy, no authority over your own life. Your only hopeful recourse is to cry out for mercy. Your only recourse is to submit to the Lordship of Christ, not to pretend to compete with it. And this is what it means to follow the Lord. It's not to make a deal with Him. It's to submit wholly to His covenant that He keeps, that He establishes, that He sees through. It is to embrace the work that He begins and completes in you, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, working in you to will and to do of His good pleasure. For of Him and through Him unto Him are all things, even our following Christ. Finally, under follow me. These two blind men illustrated what it means to follow Christ. And then again, again in the context, they refer to him three times as Lord. In the Greek, it's kurios. Kurios is a word that had a wide range of meaning. It could be merely sir, a polite address, or a person of particular note. It could go beyond that to refer to an ultimate authority. We need to look at the context to determine how the term kurios is used. When we employ the word Lord, the idea behind it is this. When we say Lord, or when the Greeks would say Lord in this sense, it was to say, he to whom, or it was addressed to an individual, that uh, address, or that word, that, con, that uh, term, it was addressed to he whom a person or a thing belongs, about which he has the power of ruling as possessor, disposer, and master. In other words, if we say you are Lord, we could be saying that merely you are Lord over your own dignity, your own, and so we grant you a little bit of dignity as a fellow sojourner in this thing called life. So, oh, it's nice to meet you, sir. What are we presuming in that context? We, in that uh, instance, in the Greek, we would employ the term Lord to indicate that this person, uh, that, that this person owns his dignity. He has the power to rule over his own legacy, what he has done, what he represents, and so on. So the term kurios, the weight of it is dependent on what is granted to the individual that he owns, that he disposes of, and, then what, and what he possesses. So now, with that context in view, let us go back to our text. What do our two blind men say in this example? They say, Lord, have mercy on us son of David. Kurios, have mercy on a son of David. What do they assign to Jesus? They assign to Jesus the possession of mercy for their souls. Messianic lineage, the fulfillment of prophecy of old when they say son of David. They assign to him as God the power to miraculously heal their physical body because he was their creator in the first place. When they say kurios, they say, Lord, you are Lord over mercy for my soul. 
You are Lord over Messiahship for all your people. You are Lord over my very being right down to my eyesight. And so when these two followed him as Lord, they followed him as the Lord of redemption, Lord of glory, Lord of creation, Lord of their being, Lord of all. And that's what it means to call Jesus Christ your Lord. He is only your kurios when he is Lord over your physical and spiritual well-being and Lord of all the universe, Lord of salvation, Lord of redemption. And thus, in that context, you're exalting Jesus Christ rightly. You're giving him the praise that he so deserves. And instead of kneeling before him, caring about only exalting yourself, you kneel before him with the understanding that he alone is to be exalted. And he alone is peerless, least of all to compete with you. Thirdly, this morning, these two blind men, and this story illustrates eyes to see. Turn back with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 13. And we'll pick up on a concept that Christ has offered most directly here, but many times in the course of his ministry and gospel proclamation. Eyes to see. First of all, the irony of this situation, as you're turning to Matthew 13, is that these men were physically blind. Though physically blind, what did they cry out? They cried out, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. There is an awareness, an understanding, an acknowledgement of the identity of Christ that is totally independent of physical eyesight. Remember what the Word of God says of faith? We walk by faith and not by sight. There are those who will only submit and surrender to Christ if they can see a certain evidence of His existence in their empirical understanding, with their own two eyes. These men were not of that sort. They had, in fact, eyes to see. Eyes beyond the physical. Before they saw with their physical eyes, they saw with their spiritual eyes, and they recognized Jesus Christ as the Son of David. Not everybody was privileged to see this. In fact, most were not awakened to this degree. Matthew 13 tells us as much. Verse 13, this is why I speak to them, Christ is telling the disciples the explanation for encrypting the gospel in parable form. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, listen closely to the following, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely, excuse me, with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. This is a judgment and an indictment on those heart of heart and hearing whose physical capabilities are working just fine, thank you, but do not recognize the Son of David, even though they have all their cognitive abilities and all their physical uh, abilities at their disposal. But there is a different category, thanks be to God. And I pray that all of us in this room fall into it. Read 16, Christ says, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Truly I say to you, Many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. There were two men counted with the disciples in this category that we have discovered in Matthew 20, and ironically, they were physically blind. But even in that state of disability so far as the reality of this temporal world is concerned, listened again to what they confessed spiritually. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And when the crowds began to rebuke them and shout them down as two blind men, don't you think it would have been natural that they might doubt their assurance of these things, their certainty on who this man was? They're blind after all. Perhaps they got it wrong. Maybe they're idiots and making fools of themselves. Maybe this man was just another common Galilean. Maybe this was just another horde on their way to celebrate Passover. Nothing extraordinary, nothing to see here. But no, 
even though the crowd derided them and said, be quiet, shut up, you're out of order. What did they do? They only strengthened their conviction. They only made louder their confession. They cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David, yet again. How could could they do this? How could they have such a counterintuitive, by man's perspective, confession, physically blind, and shouted down by a crowd? They could do it. Why? Because they had eyes to see. Eyes independent of this physical realm. Eyes in the spirit to understand and recognize that Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. This is a great hope for us. Because so long as Christ tarries in our lifetime, we will be counted among a generation who will never physically see Christ. We will never likely see Christ walk down the streets, County Road 103. Sit in a seat in Providence Community Church. Does that mean we cannot believe? No. You, in fact, can see Christ. Because there is a more important eyesight yet, eyes to see spiritually, where through the eyes of faith, Christ is more real than your two physical eyes could ever confirm. He is the Lord, the Son of David, and He has given my heart eyes to see and to affirm this truth, even when circumstances seem to shout it down. Jesus Christ reveals in this parable and in this record what it means to have eyes to see. It means that we recognize the messianic context of who Christ himself was. And interesting and even more interesting in this text is to note what happens following this moment. These men, while blind, before Christ has entered triumphantly into Jerusalem, have confessed, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. But as we continue to read in the next chapter, listen to verse 9, it says, And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna, to who? To the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. These people recognize Jesus as the son of David. And the context tells us why. They saw him riding on the foal of a donkey. They saw Zechariah 9.9 fulfilled. But the message here in context is that there were those who preceded them who saw Christ as the son of David before they had physical eyesight and before they saw the prophecies fulfilled. Indeed, faith beyond the physical, beyond the experience, granted these two blind men eyes to see. Finally, and in closing this morning, these two men illustrate what it means to drink the cup of Christ. Let me remind you a few verses previous how Jesus declares that this will be a reality for at least two men, but I would submit to you in greater scripture for all who are counted his disciples. It says in verse 22, in response to this woman's question, Christ says, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He, that is Jesus, said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. So here we have this mysterious, enigmatic phrase, drink my cup, whatever could that mean. In the context of greater scripture, we noted last week that there is a cup of God's wrath, indeed suffering, that is poured out on Christ. That is in view here, more than likely. Paul himself refers to the fellowship of Christ's sufferings over and again, and he talks about filling up in his own body what was in one sense lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Christ himself, that was an interpretation and application in Paul's own life and testimony as he was beaten, bruised, derided, mocked, shipwrecked, tried, unjustly charged, and eventually martyred. That was a testimony to this truth that Paul lived out. You can find that testimony in Acts 21, 10 through 14, as he himself heads toward Jerusalem, knowing full well what he will face. Mirroring Jesus' call to suffer towards the end of his own ministry, Paul embraced the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. Jesus himself declared of the sons of Zebedee, James and John, that they would share in his cup. He had said to all the disciples in chapter 19, and everyone who has left houses, this is verse 29, and brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. He has said in chapter 16, when he had begun to show them all he must suffer, verse 24, talks about the cup that they are to drink 
all who would fellowship with him. It said, he says in verse 24, again, if anyone would come after me, let him do what? Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What a profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul. And then rewind with me just a few more chapters still and let us note in the first great discourse of Matthew in the Beatitudes what Christ had declared to his disciples and all listening when he began to preach the kingdom of heaven. He said in verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, in verse 11, he reiterates this, Blessed are you, and others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets that were before you. I submit to you that the story of these two blind men perfectly illustrates this truth. Remember what happened? As they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. How did the crowd respond? This great crowd the majority, all of the, listen, self-identified community of Christ. These weren't the scribes of Pharisees. These weren't the mobs whipped into a frenzy because Christ was unpopular. These were still those who, in some superficial sense at least, associated themselves with Christ at this moment. What did this crowd do? They rose up and they rebuked them, telling them to be silent. And how did they respond, these two blind men? They drank the cup. They endured the suffering. They did not let the shouts of the majority, the crowd of even the self-identified with Christ, silence their conviction, their request, and their confession. They cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on me, son of David. They were counted, these two men, blessed, as Christ had declared. Why? Because others had reviled and persecuted them. They had uttered all kinds of evil against them falsely, but they had done it on Christ's account. So these men knew to rejoice and to be glad because their reward was great in heaven. And the picture of that reward was greatly illustrated in the same text when they received their spiritual sight. As we've already mentioned, when the compassion of Christ was moved to have pity on them and his affections was turned toward these men and he paused on his journey to touch their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight. Drinking Christ's cup, what does it mean? It means suffering with him, joining in his journey even to Calvary. It means, listen, bearing the rebuke even of those who self-identify as Christians. There are those who followed Christ that decried them in their pursuit of Christ. The crowds turned against them at this time and the men, because of their conviction, and their pursuit of Christ cried out all the more. A recent message in God's providence, following the course of Matthew's gospel, we delivered from Matthew 19, verse 4, the verses surrounding. This is an application point I want to deliver to you today. Matthew 19, 4, Christ says this, He answered, Have you not read? This is in response to a question about marriage that the popular opinion held which was in violation of the holy, immutable word of God. Now, thinking they had Christ over the barrel, because of the popularity of where they stood, the religious leaders sought to entrap Christ and delivered to them this question, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? How did Christ answer? He said, have you not read? What did he do? He appealed to the authority of the written word of God, which will never change and establishes immutably the law of God's righteousness. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh? I want to close with an application of what it may mean for you and me, one example, to drink the cup of Christ. It may mean for you and me, in light of the Supreme Court ruling this week, that when we agree with Christ that marriage is one man and one woman under God, we may well be shouted down by the majority. The crowds may turn against us 
if we identify with Jesus Christ, our Lord, the Son of David, His Word, His Law, and do not compromise. The Supreme Court has just invented out of whole cloth a so-called a right to so-called same-sex marriage seeking in their hubris to codify injustice by statute. Their word will not stand. The question is, will we stand? Their word will not stand. Will you stand? What if the whole crowd, even those who self-identify as the community of Jesus Christ, Many fall on this issue. Will you cry out over the den? I pursue the son of David who said that marriage is between one man and one woman because from the beginning God instituted it and it is not up for judicial review. This may be the point where we are called to suffer. This may be the cup that we ourselves are called to drink. I would ask you to hold your pastor accountable to this stance. We cannot, as a Christian community, waver one jot, one iota from the authority and this, the immutability of our Lord, our Master, and His Word. How big is your curios? How big is your concept of the Lordship of Christ? Is He Lord over your being? Is He Lord over sexuality? Is He Lord over all truth, absolute rule, righteousness, ethics, faith, and practice, every area of life? Is he son of David? Is he Messiah? Does he reserve the right to establish once and for all time both the standard of righteousness and the sufficient sacrifice to justify you according to those terms? And will you agree with your confession that Jesus Christ is worth following even to the grave? Will you join him as a disciple? Cleave steadfastly to one, conform wholly to his example in living, and if need be, in dying also, or at the risk of the mockery, the shouting down of the crowds, would call and charge you to look to the two examples in our text this morning to gain encouragement. Two men who had eyes to see. Two men who understood personally what it means when Christ says, the last shall be first. Two men who left all behind, even the approval of men, even the approval of the self-identified fellowship of uh, community of Jesus Christ to follow the true Christ, two men who had eyes to see, two men who were willing to drink his cup. Psalm 123. Turn there with me. As we leave this message, with a note of assurance and hope. Psalm 120 through Psalm 134 are the Psalms of Ascent. They were the songs that were sung when caravans, just like Christ, had, those who had joined Christ used to journey and pilgrimage to keep the feasts of Passover. They would sing songs like this hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ's ascent to Calvary, to Jerusalem. They would sing a song of ascent of David, Psalm 124, for instance. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us, when the flood would have swept us away, the torrent would have gone over us, then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. They would sing songs of ascent on that same journey like this, Psalm 123. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens, behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their masters, as the eyes of maidservants to the hand of their mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, till He has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Do these words sound familiar? They're echoed by the blind men of Matthew 20. Have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Those words strike a chord of familiarity in us. The whole crowd shouted them down. Finally, verse 4, 
Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. Submit to you, Psalm 123, Psalm 124, all of the songs of ascent are fulfilled in these moments, what they represent when Christ was ascending to Jerusalem. And in Christ, we have refuge and safe haven, no matter the wickedness and injustice that surrounds us on every side. And we have the assurance when we cry out for mercy, save us, son of David, that he will give us eyes to see that we, as the last, might be first by his grace and blood alone, that we will have strength by his spirit living in us to follow him, even if it means drinking his cup. Let's close in prayer. O Heavenly Father, we submit to your rule and lordship this morning. We confess any area of our understanding and our profession that has fallen short of saying, declaring, living, believing with spiritual eyes to see that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. There are any in this room who fellowship among us who have not yet cried out, have mercy on me, son of David. May their heart cry out today, joining every confessing believer in this room, knowing they are a sinner saved by grace, and joining the voice of the two blind men who you paused to heal on the road to Calvary. And all that you might be glorified, your kingdom would be championed, and that one day we will receive the full ransom price for our souls that your blood paid for, rest eternal in glory where we will worship unhindered. Worthy is a lamb who is slain, the ransom price for our soul. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.